Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Thomas Hardy penned this poetic lament a hundred years ago. He said, Peace upon earth was said. We sing it. We pay a million priests to bring it. After 2,000 years of mass, we've got as far as poison gas. He was writing close to uh, World War I. How do we reconcile the, the promise of peace and the reality of war? That's the tension we live in, and the time between the times, and the, the past Advent and the future Advent. What I love about Advent is it doesn't turn a blind eye to this pain. Instead, it gives our longings and our hopes room to breathe. It welcomes them. Longing because we live in a world where all is not right. And hope because of the future certainty that all things will be right. So whatever the burdens that you carry this morning, I know all of us came in with things on our hearts Whatever you're carrying into the Advent season, know that there's room for them, that Advent makes room for them. They are welcome. And that Advent is not going to completely solve them for you. It's too honest to offer a quick fix to these deeply painful realities, but it will honor them. It will give them room to breathe, and it will then invite you to hope, even in in the midst of them. Well, how? Why? Why can we hope? Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 gives us at least three reasons. Hope because of the Messiah. We'll look at the Messiah. Hope because of his character. And then hope finally because of his kingdom. So first, let's hope. You're invited to hope in Advent because we have a Messiah. 700 years before Christ, Isaiah is um, speaking of a Messiah king. By the way, after the Psalms, the New Testament quotes the book of Isaiah more than any other book. So you got to read Isaiah. So 700 years before Christ, Isaiah 11.1 promises a Messiah king. Isaiah says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So first, consider this stump. The metaphor is pretty simple. God's people have been cut down in judgment. Through nations like Assyria and, and Babylon, Israel is reduced. It's cut down. The great promises that God had made, like 2 Samuel 7, um, God is going to build a great kingdom through the Davidic line. Those promises promises seem broken. They seem like empty promises. Israel is not flourishing. It was a forest, and now it's becoming a stump. And I wonder now if you can relate to that. The time between God's promises and their fulfillment can seem very long. Are there not moments in this time, this time between the Advents for us, where where you feel reduced, where you feel cut down, where you look around and feel confused by what seems like God's failure to keep his word? The the problem of pain, it's been called, alongside a good and all-powerful God, this tension has a name. It's called theodicy. Uh, Tishwarn Harrison calls theodicy the engine of our grimmest doubts. And she notes in her book, Prayer in the Night, uh, a reflection on Compline, that many young people and many agnostics are leaving the church because of this very question. And the problem is, in the end, theodicy, the problem of pain, is not something that can be solved reasonably. Theodicy, instead, is a mystery to be endured to some extent. But how can we endure it? And the answer is hope. That is the answer. Because there are stumps everywhere. Yes, we all have them. 
We all have places in our life that hurt, where we feel cut down, where we feel confused, and our, our hearts are simply asking the question, where is God in this? And Isaiah says, in the midst of that, to a people, he says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch that shall bear fruit. Last year, I had a huge tree in my yard cut down because it had a disease, and they were trying to grind the root out, but they, they found that it had a metal ring around it, so it couldn't, couldn't fully be ground. And so, I experienced this reality, um, shoots springing up everywhere from the roots in my yard, constantly. So Israel is a stump, but Isaiah tells Israel where hope begins. A shoot from Jesse. This is simply a metaphor for lineage. Jesse is King David's father. King David is, of course, an ancestor of Jesus. And so, how does Matthew begin? Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So right out of the gate, he's pointing us to Isaiah 11.1. But Jesus, as the fulfillment of this ancient prophecy, is not just about lineage. He also gives us this clue in location. So look at this. Matthew, in chapter 2, says these puzzling words, and they've confused many people. He says this, Jesus went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The only problem is the prophets never said that, at least explicitly. And so people are a little bit puzzled. Matthew seems to be doing a wordplay here using Isaiah 11. So the Hebrew word for branch, as in a branch from Jesse's roots in Isaiah 11.1, is netzer. Netzer. Do you hear Nazareth in there? That's what Matthew heard. In other words, Matthew, inspired by the Spirit, is interpreting Isaiah 11.1 this way. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a Nazarene. A shoot, a branch, a Nazarene. So Fulton Sheen considers the implications of these prophecies. He writes, Socrates had no one to tell of his birth. Buddha had no one to pre-announce him. Confucius did not have the name of his mother or his birthplace recorded. No one heralded Muhammad before his birth. Others just came and said, here I am. Believe me. They were, therefore, only men among men. Great teachers, though they may have been. Christ alone stepped out of the line because he alone was the divine taking on human flesh. Hundreds of years, 700 years here before the first advent of Christ. When you look at all the prophecies of the Old Testament with the patriarchs and the prophets and you you sort of put them together, here's a picture that emerges. We're, We're told we need to anticipate a king from Judah, from Jesse, from David, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, who would heal and deliver and bless the nations and lay down his life as a patient sufferer, Isaiah 53, a substitute guilt offering for the people's sins. Who else but Jesus? Who else but Jesus fulfills these ancient promises? Though it unfolded over millennia, God kept his promises to his people. He really did send a Nazarene a shoot from Jesse, and this is where hope begins for us. It's always where hope begins. The Nazarene came just as he promised. Jesus, the Messiah, is a reminder that God always, always keeps his promises. Though Sometimes it seems like it takes a while, doesn't it? Well, next, hope kind of expands and deepens as we consider the character of the Messiah, as we think about who this Messiah is. Isaiah goes on to describe the branch, this Nazarene. And the first thing we note is this. 
The promised Nazarene, the promised shoot from the stump of Jesse, will be characterized by the very breath of God about him, the Spirit. Isaiah 11:2. The Spirit of the Lord shall, remember this word, rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Again, Matthew is careful to note in Matthew 3:16, Jesus is getting baptized, the heavens are open, and he sees the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. The Spirit-empowered Messiah is Christ, and he's empowered especially with two things, spiritual wisdom, we read in Isaiah 11, and righteous judgment. So first, Messiah is wise. He's wise. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, says verse 3, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. How many of us can say the same? You know, we say you can't judge a book by its cover. We do, do we not? How many of you honestly Buy a bottle of wine based on the label. (laughs) Yeah, me too. How many of us have not often done the spiritual equivalent of this? Going after him or her or it because it glitters, basically. And in the end, we've been burned because we didn't have the spiritual insight and the wisdom to see past the, the, the appearances of things. So Jesus looks past the label and into the heart, be it the woman at the well The woman caught in adultery. Think about Levi, the tax collector, who becomes Matthew, the disciple. Jesus is always seeing people and situations below the surface with profound spiritual wisdom. And so Christmas is exhibit A. Jesus is, by all estimates, the most influential figure in, in all of world history. How did he get there? Well, there's two possible routes. There's God's wisdom and world the world's wisdom. So the world's wisdom would would suggest something like this. He should probably be, if if Jesus were to gather some counselors and say, how can I be the most influential figure in history? They'd say something like this. Well, be born in Rome, not Bethlehem. Grow up in the halls of power, not backwater Nazareth. Um, Monetize your ministry early on. That's a big one. Um, Get the best publicist, image consultant, social, social media brand consultant. Get the best ones money can buy. Go on the Joe Rogan podcast as soon as you can. God's wisdom doesn't work that way. It sees so far beyond. Jesus is born in the stench of a barn in the middle of nowhere. And then he shuns all institutions of power, turns would-be followers away with impossibly hard teachings, like, you have to eat my flesh or you're going to die. And they're like, really, Jesus? Yeah, really. And so they leave. And then he voluntarily offers himself up for Roman torture and death. That's God's wisdom. Could it be that God's wisdom is high and above your wisdom? And that you cannot trust what your eyes see, but you can trust the wisdom of God. And so when you look around and you see your life and there's lots of stumps and disappointments and confusion, remember that your Messiah is wise. He is wise. Second, he's got righteous judgment. Verse 4, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Two important words here, judgment and poor. To judge here, we've got a lot of baggage with that word, but it's a good word. It's not a a bad word. To judge here means to administer justice, to, to make things right, basically. And the poor here means the lowly, the powerless, the insignificant, not just the economically poor. So God has promised that his Messiah will make things right for the insignificant, Can you imagine a world where that is the case? 
I'll never forget uh, an early experience I had in ministry. Um, <clears throat> I'll never forget I was sitting across the table from the most important person in a very crowded room, and we were having dinner. And he ate his dinner very quickly, and he only spoke to the other, probably the second most important in the room, person in the room, person next to him, very quickly spoke to him and, and wolfed down his food, never met my eye. I was too nervous to talk to him, never even looked at me, never said hello. <clears throat> and then he got up, and then he said to the second most important person in the room next to him, he said, I'm going to go work the room. And I was like, oh. Oh. It was not a good, not a good impression. Um, and, and yet, to be honest, I don't really hold it against him. Um, I think we've all done a similar thing. I've probably done the same thing, where we just we overlook the people around us. We're kind of self-interested. And the point is this. It's not, it's not to like harp on that, that person. It's to say the Messiah never does that. I think if the Messiah were here or there, he would seek out the lowest person in the room. He would find the most insignificant, the weakest, the most broken, and go after them. He's not interested in climbing the ladder. He's interested in getting down to the bottom. Now, in small ways and large ways, we've all probably felt lowly or, or powerless or insignificant. Some of our current circumstances probably have us feeling that way. Bills, maybe, that keep coming, or, or a boss, or a medical condition, or a, an unmet desire. Things that have really humbled us. We can hope because our Messiah not only does see us, he does see us, but he also wisely knows what is best for us. And finally, we'll look now, he will see it done. He will make it right. He will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So finally, we can hope because of his kingdom. If you could bring up that last slide, Claire, or the, the picture, the painting. Um, this is a painting by Edward Hicks, who, like Isaiah, was kind of a prophet. He was a Quaker pastor about 200, painting about 200 years ago. And he painted over 100 editions of this, this uh, reading from Isaiah. He called it the peaceable kingdom. This is the most famous. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. A calf and a lion, a fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. So he puts Isaiah, the prophet, and Edward Hicks, the prophet, puts Jesus right in the center of the painting and the poem. There he is above the, the lion's shoulder to the right, the little child. You know, in the awful aftermath of the terrorist attacks of 9-11, there was a, a task force that was commissioned to explain how could such a thing happen? How in the world could that happen? Their uh, conclusion was that 9-11 basically happened because of what they called a failure of imagination. A failure of imagination. We didn't defend against a plane as a weapon because we just couldn't have conceived of it. The same dynamic is at work all over the place in daily life. Well, we also saw it probably at Pearl Harbor. Uh, or the Titanic. We couldn't have imagined those lifeboats would possibly be necessary. Um, we see it in daily life in poverty. People who grew up in poverty and in mindsets are entrenched. Everyone they know and see is just stuck in this pattern, and so they have a failure of imagination that life could be any different. This plays out in addictions, in patterns in relationships, in workplaces, and even in the ways we think about ourselves and our self-talk. How many, how many businesses and, and works of art, ministries, technologies, never started or never thrived because of a failure of imagination. What do we need to shake us out of a failure of imagination? Drawing on Walter Brueggemann, Thomas McKenzie says, we need prophets. Prophets. People who come along and inspire us to see and hope for a better reality. Isaiah's prophecy of a world without predatorial violence is beautifully captured here. This little child, Jesus, in the midst of them, 
You know, this prophecy, like Advent, it has, it has a present and a, and a future tense. On the one hand, it is an image of the future Advent when Christ the King does reign and pacifies all predators and there is no more violence. You know, the animals in the foreground get at that. And it's also a way of saying, it's this world God is going to redeem. It's not some different place. The very goats and the lambs are going to be pacified. But notice also the background here. This group of people. There we see the Native Americans gathered under the peace tree with the Pennsylvania's founder, William Penn. And he entered into this treaty of friendship with the Lenape Indians in, 16, uh, in the 1680s. He was respected by the Lenape because he treated them like brothers and, and learned their language. Hicks saw this as a present tense advent, an arrival of the peace of God into ordinary life, where sort of the animalistic, warring, violent places of our hearts were, were, were made peaceful by the love of Christ. Uh, he called this the inward advent of the Savior. And so he thought, this is something that begins to happen now. And yet, this picture captures the tension. Hicks knew that in this treaty, he, by the time he painted this, this treaty had been basically, it had fallen apart. You know, he, he knew that this did not last. That though Penn entered into it in goodwill, his successors did not. So since Christ has come, already, has come already, we are to join the prophets, including Hicks, in imagining a world full of wisdom and justice and peace. We are to help others imagine this reality through art, through, through business, through our parenting, through friendship, through grandparenting, through public discourse, through the way we engage with politics. But since Christ has not yet come again, we are also to join in the prophets in putting Jesus in the center of the painting. Because the kingdom is not something ultimately we can accomplish. We can make treaties. We can do our best to keep them. But in the end, finally, it will only be accomplished through Christ in our midst. Now, in the meantime, can you imagine some ways to participate? First and foremost, maybe we can participate in the inward advent of the Savior by the way we treat one another. No longer devouring one another. No longer devouring the weak like the world does. No longer just looking for the most powerful person in the room. Victoria Jones again summarizes, she, she has this great commentary on this piece. She summarizes Hicks' painting this way. Hicks denounces animalistic passions of humankind, selfishness, greed, violence, bitterness, hate. Those are the predators in the painting. These untamed vices can be subdued only in allegiance to Christ. Like the ravenous lion who refused meat to eat straw with his brother ox, or the wolf who, rather than skulking, lies down in friendship with the sister lamb, so too, because of Christ's love in them, can people say no to the ignoble instincts that pit them against one another. And so here again we have the already and the not yet. He's come. He's begun to make our own hearts his peaceful kingdom. And yet we ultimately await him coming in our midst to make the full kingdom here, to wipe every tear, as James talked about last week. So let's land the plane by circling back to this question of theodicy. Where is God in all this? Advent, first of all, means that if you're asking that question, you're not alone. The question is a good one. It's one the Lord invites you to ask in the Advent season. Um, the Lord invites you to ask it with hope, knowing that what we ultimately desire, we don't yet have. And that can be really hard. Again, Tish Warren writes, I've come to see theodicy as an existential knife fight. 
between the reality of our own quaking vulnerability and our hope for a God who can be trusted. So if we start here with our own quaking vulnerability, we have two ways to go forward, either to hope or to despair. Those are our choices. We will inevitably go to despair if we cannot imagine with the prophets a better future. If life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing, then we are right to suppress our burdens. You know, just try to ignore them and push them down with whatever cocktail of creature comforts we can distract ourselves with before the lights go out. But if God keeps his promises, if, if shoots spring up from stumps, if God really did send the Messiah, Jesus, who really does have spiritual wisdom and righteous judge, judgment, and if he really is eventually going to turn swords into plows and reconcile lion and lamb, and the earth is eventually going to be an ocean of his presence and his knowledge and his love, then I can lament instead of despair. Because actually to lament is hopeful. To lament is to admit I'm vulnerable, I don't have yet what I want, and it's really hard. But we also hope because we can imagine and actually believe that it could, it can, and it will be one day be better. And so a lament is to say, oh Lord, come. Advent's ultimate answer to the question then, where is God in all of this, is it's Christmas. He sent forth a shoot from the stump. He sent himself, the Nazarene. C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces exemplifies this well. Uh, if you've read it, it's, I think, his best writing. Um, maybe not my favorite book of his, but it's so well written. In it, the, the, the protagonist, Oriol, pens her complaint against the gods. She's saying to the gods, I was born ugly. I lost my mother when I was young. I lost my best friend and sister. And so she outlines her grief in bitter detail. Many of us could do the same. I'm coming into Advent with this and this and this and this. These are the stumps of my life. Tishwarren again concludes, On the last page of the book, with her list of accusations still in her hand, Oriel meets God, the true God, in a vision. And she is transformed. And she concludes her book finally with this, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. For you yourself are the answer. Before your face questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Words, mere words. Ultimately, I don't think we just want words. We want him. And that's what he's promised to bring. So Advent offers not an answer, not a quick fix. It offers a story. A story about a promised savior who would sprout up in the unlikeliest of devastations, this felled forest and sheds tears and blood and gives friendship and faithfulness, and he makes our own quaking vulnerability his own so that his glorious kingdom could be ours. And so finally then the question of Advent is this, will you, will you welcome his arrival? Will you allow this inward Advent to happen? We recognize that Christ is not like the other gods. The prophets foretold him he came so are you going to hope in him? Are you going to hope in his goodness? Are you going to hope in his kingdom? That's the question for you. Father, I pray that maybe even for the first time, some of us would say yes to that. Maybe we've put our hope in so many other places. Maybe we're not sure where to put our hope. Maybe we're wrestling with whether or not we even can hope. I pray that this Advent, you would arrive afresh in each of us, but especially maybe even for the first time for someone who needs to place their hope in you.
and surrender. Would you make your peaceful kingdom come alive in each of our hearts? Would you lift up the downcast, the various stumps in our lives? Would you, would you bring to life? We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.